0: In the last lecture, we started by looking at the general equation for concerted additions to alkenes. And what I'm going to do this lecture is to look at three examples of these concerted additions, and then we'll finish off um, the reactivity of alkenes by looking at a special types of alkenes called 1,3-dienes and related species called conjugated polyenes. Let's take the first, then, of our concerted additions, and this one is catalytic hydrogenation. What we're doing is we're adding the elements of hydrogen onto the alkene to convert the alkene into an alkane. Now if you mix an alkene with hydrogen, nothing happens. You need a catalyst in there as well. The catalyst is almost invariably a group 8 heavy transition metal uh, compound or element and typical examples, very common ones for example, are as follows. We can use platinum oxide. This is sometimes called Adam's catalyst because it was introduced by American chemist Adams as a means of doing this. Or we can use 5% palladium absorbed onto charcoal. It usually is 5%, it can be 10%, but it's quite commonly 5%. A small amount of palladium absorbed onto a large charcoal surface. Or we can use rhodium in the same way. Usually a 10% rhodium spread onto a uh, onto a charcoal surface or finally we can use what is known as rainy nickel this is a very very reactive type of nickel it is actually made by taking uh, a fairly inert substance, a nickel aluminium alloy, which is treated with sodium hydroxide the sodium hydroxide dissolves out the aluminium and leaves behind a very finely divided nickel in, slu- in suspension in, in the aqueous solution this stuff is very pyrophoric it's if it 's dry, so when you filter it off, you must never let it completely dry and filter in you filter it off a bit and then you wash it with water or you wash it with an organic solvent. you always keep it damp and then you can use it in the organic solvent to hydrogenate uh, the compound you want to hydro- hydrogenate. Now we said that these concerted reactions proceed by syn addition, so that should be reflected in the mechanism by which this occurs now the mechanism is perhaps not quite as well known in this case as it is in many other reactions because we're dealing with a heterogeneous reaction mixture. The, the catalyst is there as a solid and the alkene is in solution. But what is believed to happen is the catalyst breaks the hydrogen-hydrogen bond. That must perforce be a something to happen because that hydrogen-hydrogen bond has got to break because those two hydrogens got go to go onto the alkene at some stage. We believe then that hydrogen-hydrogen bond breaks and we form two metal hydrogen bonds on the surface of the catalyst. Then the alkene comes in and sits on top of those two hydrogens and the hydrogens are transferred to the alkene to give the alkane and the catalyst is regenerated in that process. And because the alkene can only come in one way, on the top as it were, and the hydrogen is delivered to one face, it can't be delivered to both faces at the same time, we end up with our syn addition. We end up with our stereospecific reaction. A good example of this is as follows. These reactions, incidentally, generally proceed in quite high yields and quite often quantitative yields. Actually, if we take dimethylcyclohexene and we treat it with hydrogen in the presence of palladium charcoal in a suitable solvent such as ethyl acetate, then what happens is we end up with the cis dimethyl-suclohexane. The two hydrogens are indeed on the same face of the hydrogen of the, of the ring, as we expected from syn addition. Okay, so that's the first of our concerted additions. The second is dihydroxylation. Now, dihydroxylation is, the general equation for that is taking the alkene and adding formally, when I say formally, hydrogen peroxide. We end up with OH on one end and OH on the other. It looks as if we're adding hydrogen peroxide. Now, we don't actually add hydrogen peroxide. In fact, hydrogen peroxide is, is not really involved in this at all. We use other reagents. And the two reagents which are of prime importance in this dihydroxylation reaction are alkaline potassium permanganate and osmium tetroxide. These two reagents are complementary because alkaline permanganate is used in aqueous solutions and therefore can be used for water-soluble alkenes. Whereas tetroxide is pretty soluble in organic solvents and can be used then for, uh, for reactions in organic solvents and for alkenes which are only soluble in organic solvents. Let's look at the mechanisms of these two reactions. In fact, they're very similar. If we look at the permanganate, first of all, the permanganate adds on to the double bond in this sort of cyclic electron process to give this intermediate. This intermediate is called a manganate ester. It's like an ester of an acid, the the manganese acting as an acid, if you like, so a manganate ester. Now, in that process, the manganese started off with an oxidation state 7 in the potassium permanganate and has gone down to manganese 5 in this manganate ester. Manganese 5 is not normally a stable oxidation state of manganese. So this is a, an unstable species, and that's why I put it in brackets. And what happens in the aqueous system, it almost certainly gets hydrolyzed first of all to give the product, the organic product that we want, the dihydroxy compound or diol, these are called diols incidentally, and let's say a manganese 5 hydroxy species. Now we're not quite sure exactly what happens after this, but we certainly go from this species to manganese dioxide, which is manganese 4. We generate potassium hydroxide in that reaction if you look at the stoichiometry. And if you look at the stoichiometry, we should generate hydrogen peroxide as well in the reaction. But almost certainly, the hydrogen peroxide will be destroyed by further permanganate. So we don't actually see hydrogen peroxide at the end of the day. It's really a very complicated reaction after the loss of the dial uh, part. The osmium tetroxide, in contrast, is much simpler. We start now with osmium tetroxide, which has in which osmium has an oxidation state of eight. This adds on in exactly the same way, six-electron cyclic process, to give this species, which is called an osmate ester. Now, osmate esters, unlike manganate esters, are stable species. You actually isolate them in many cases. Now, we don't want the osmate ester because uh, we want the organic product as organic chemists, essentially. And there is a a big problem with using osmium tetroxide. And that is two problems really. The first is that it is very toxic and the second is that it is very expensive. So ideally we don't want to be doing this in a stoichiometric sense. What we want to do is to use perhaps a catalytic amount of osmium tetroxide. And that would have the advantage that by removing the osmium from this osmate ester and funnel it back into the osmium tetroxide we would also release the dihydroxy compound, the organic compound, the diol, which is what we want at the end There, And we can do these osmine tetroxide reactions quite like that, using catalytic amounts of osmine tetroxide by using what is known as a two-phase system, that is one phase is a water, uh, a water layer, and the other phase is the organic layer. In the organic layer, we have the osmine tetroxide and the alkene, which is quite stable. And in the, o- in the water layer, we have something which can oxidise the osmate ester back to osmium-8. Remember in the osmate ester osmium-6. We've gone down to osmium-6. And the oxidant we tend to use in the water layer is simply hydrogen peroxide. It's quite a good oxidant and it will oxidize osmium-6 back up to osmium-8. So the aqueous system has two roles. It hydrolyzes off the osmium from the diol and releases that and it takes the osmium back up to osmium-8 allows the reaction to proceed and therefore we can use catalytic amounts of osmium tetroxide, stoichiometric amounts of hydrogen peroxide and we don't have to worry too much about the toxicity and the expense of the osmium tetroxide. The third concerted reaction which I want to deal with is a bit different from the others in that the reagent adds to the double bond but then the reaction goes further and we end up with a complete cleavage of the double bond. And this reaction is ozonolysis. The general equation is if we take an alkene like this and we treat it with ozone, we end up with the double bond being cleaved right down the middle and we end up with two carbonyl components, two oxygens, where the double bond was originally. That's ozonolysis. Let's look at the mechanism and see what happens. Ozone is a bent molecule, it's not straight it has a bend in it like that and it is dipolar the central oxygen is positively charged and one of the termini, uh, or the termini oxygens are negatively charged and we can add on in exactly this sort of six-electron cyclic process this is indeed a, what is known as a pericyclic reaction I mentioned those in my first lecture Pericyclic addition to the alkene, very similar you see to the osmium tetroxide and permanganate additions, except now we're not dealing with the metal, to give this species. Again, I put it in square brackets, it's not stable, it's an intermediate. This is called the primary ozonide, or mol ozonide. As far as I'm aware, none of these have been isolated. I suspect they've been detected, but I don't think they've been isolated. They are very, very unstable. And what happens? is that a lone pair on one of the oxygens directly attached to carbon can come round, we again get a six-electron process and we fragment this ozonide into these two species. The top species is simply a carbonyl group and the bottom one is a carbonyl group with an oxygen on the oxygen of the carbonyl group and indeed it is called a carbonyl oxide. Again, we put these in brackets because although the carbonyl compound is stable, the carbonyl oxide is not. It's very reactive, and will not sit around and wait for us to isolate it. What happens now is the carbonyl oxide in space flips over and re-adds back on to the carbonyl component. And fact, if, as you look at that reaction, it's a six-electron pericyclic process, it is directly analogous to the first reaction, that is, the ozone addition to the alkene. In fact, it this carbon dioxide is isoelectronic with the ozone. You see it's a bent species, has a positively charged carbon, a positively charged oxygen rather in the middle, negatively charged carbon at the end, a double bond between the carbon and the oxygen. So it looks very similar to ozone and it does the same thing. It adds back on to the, uh, the other half of the what was the original double bond <coughs> and we get this species which is called a secondary ozonide Now these are stable, not in brackets, many of them are stable anyway. Uh, And they can be isolated in some cases. But it is not wise to isolate these because a lot of these are quite dangerous in terms of of their explosiveness. They can uh, blow up very easily. And so what we want to do is to convert this to something much more easier to handle, much more safe to handle. And what we do then is once the ozonolysis is finished and got to the secondary ozonide, we add a reductant, we add zinc in acetic acid, or ethanic acid. And what that does is it reduces this oxygen-oxygen bond, this peroxy bond, to give two hydroxy groups. And in this species, you'll learn when you deal with carbonyl chemistry, is a a sort of hydrate species. It fragments to give water and two molecules of our our carbonyl components from either end of the double bond. Ozonolysis is, again, a very high-yielding reaction, one like hydrogenation. It used to be used in the old days to detect where double bonds were in molecules. This was before spectroscopy came along. Um, and again, uh, <coughs> it was uh, a very useful tool from that point of view. One split the alkene into two carbonyl components. Many carbonyl components, ketones and aldehydes, were known. One could make solid derivatives of those and identify those and therefore put back reconstructing one's mind where the double bond was. Of course it doesn't distinguish between geometrical isomers. Both geometrical isomers give the same carbonyl components, but nevertheless you can determine where the double bond was in the original compound. Okay, that finishes the, the concerted additions and now we're going to look at a class of alkenes which have a, a rich chemistry uh, albeit fairly small, but a rich chemistry in their own right. And these are 1,3-dienes and conjugated polyenes and the first thing I want to discuss in, in relation to these compounds is ultraviolet spectroscopy, a new form of spectroscopy which we haven't seen yet. You see the conjugated polyenes, we have essentially rather like an opened out benzene have a double bond, single bond, double bond, single bond, double bond, single bond. The 1,3 dienes are double bond, single bond, and then double bond, just two double bonds, and if we count from the left hand side, 1, 2, 3, we see that the double bonds start on carbons 1 and 3, and that's where they get their name from, 1,3 dienes. Ultraviolet spectroscopy is very much uh, related to these types of systems, and What happens in ultraviolet spectroscopy is that we irradiate a compound with ultraviolet or visible light. It should really be ultraviolet visible spectroscopy, either ultraviolet or visible light. And we get an absorption. We've seen with infrared spectroscopy that we absorb uh, infrared radiation. We've seen with nuclear magnetic resonance spectroscopy that we absorb magnetic radiation and so forth. Here we are absorbing ultraviolet and visible radiation. And if we look at the following spectra, a series of compounds which have increasing numbers of double bonds, what we see is an interesting phenomenon. We start off with an alkene, and we get an absorption, the longest wavelength absorption, that is the one um, with highest num- wave numbers, or highest sorry, not wave numbers, wavelength, highest wavelength of light, is at about 220 nanometers of light absorbed. So if you put two double bonds in there, it goes up to about 280 or so. Three goes up to 300, four even further. And if we get to this molecule, beta-carotene, which has 11 double bonds in conjugation, we find that the longest wavelength band is about 500 nanometers. Now, the visible region of light starts at about 300 nanometers, and so as soon as you start to get bands above that, they start to absorb part of the visible light and they reflect the rest of the visible light in other words they become coloured compounds and indeed, carotene is an orangey-yellow compound it absorbs the blue-green light and reflects the orangey-yellow light and what we want to try and explain is why is it that as we increase the number of double bonds in conjugation and we get delocalised electrons like benzene remember benzene has alternate single double bonds we can delocalise the electrons over the whole lot here we're doing it along a chain why do we see an increasing absorption, an increasing wavelength, the, uh, the size of the wavelength of absorption of light? Well, in order to understand that, we need to do two things. First, we need to know why, what happens when a molecule absorbs light. And we need, secondly, to look at the molecular orbitals involved, because it does involve orbitals. Let's take ethene, first of all, and see what happens when we irradiate with light. We start off, we've seen this when we're talking about alkenes, we start off with a pi-bond in which we have two electrons, and a pi-star bond which we have no electrons, and they are a certain energy apart, on our energy diagram. When we irradiate that molecule with light, the light promotes one of the electrons from this low pi orbital, low energy pi orbital, up to the high energy pi-star orbital, and we end up with this species, with the two electrons separate, one in the pi orbital, one in the pi star orbital. This is called an excited state because it really is excited. We've added that amount of energy, the energy gap between the two orbitals. we've actually put that in in the form of light and indeed the wavelength of light absorbed corresponds to that energy jump. Whereas this is the ground state, so called, it's the stable state. And so we see that we've The absorption of light promotes electrons from filled orbitals into empty orbitals. Now let's take the first three of our conjugated series and just look at the orbitals concerned and see whether we can see what the differences in energy gap will be. We're going to compare ethene with 1,3-butadiene with 1,35-hexatrine. Ethene we've seen already. We have these two orbitals here. With untreated butadiene, the bottom and the top orbitals are about the same position as in ethene, and there are two remaining orbitals. Remember, we have to the total number of molecular orbitals in a species is the same as the number of atomic orbitals we started with. This was, I mentioned a long time ago, the linear combination of atomic orbitals method. We get four p orbitals, which make up the two double bonds in butadiene, and therefore we must end up with four molecular orbitals in the resultant butadiene. The top and the bottom ones I said are about the same position as in ethene, and so the remaining two must go in between. We have four electrons to go in, four pi electrons, two in the bottom, two in the, mid- the next one up. With 135 hexatriene, we have six atomic p orbitals to mix, to overlap. We're therefore going to get six molecular orbitals. Again, the bottom and the top are about the same as in ethene, and we end up then with four in between the top and the bottom. Again, we fill in our electrons two, four, six, by the Aufbau principle. And now you see what is happening is that the gap between the lowest filled orbital and the, or sorry, the highest filled orbital and the lowest unfilled orbital is getting closer and closer. If we Draw a line down here, we can see they are getting closer and closer. So the energy required to promote electron in 135 hexatriene from that orbital there to that one there is smaller than in ethene from the pi to the pi star. And you can imagine that as we increase the number of double ones, so these orbits will get closer and closer. And so the amount of energy required is smaller, therefore the wavelength of light is longer, because the longer the wavelength of light, the less energetic it is. Okay, so that's UV violet spe- ultraviolet visible spectroscopy. And the final thing I want to mention in this lecture, and it finishes off alkenes, uh, the reactivity anyway, is a reaction of 1,3-dienes which is known as the Diels order reaction. If we take our 1,3-diene, butadiene, for example, and rearrange it, write it in a slightly different order, uh, fashion, like this, so the two double ones are pointing in the same direction, and we write an alkene with an electron withdrawing group on it, and we just mix these two and heat them up, we can write a six-electron pericyclic process again, Six electrons go around the cycle and we end up with a cyclohexene derivative with an electron withdrawing group on it. An electron withdrawing group can be an aldehyde, a ketone, an ester, a nitro group, a sulfone, sulfoxy, anything which powerfully withdraws electrons from that bond. And this reaction proceeds very well and a very common um, alkene component in this reaction is this molecule, which is called maleic anhydride. It has two electron withdrawing groups on it on either end of the double bond, and this reacts very well with dienes. And this is a very, very useful way of making cyclohexenes. It looks a very simple reaction, indeed it is, but it has been used in innumerable ways for synthesising products, and it is so of such usefulness that in fact Dills and Order won the Nobel Prize just for discovering this and other examples of this type of reaction. So we've seen in this lecture that We've looked at three types of concerted reaction, that is catalytic hydrogenation, dihydroxylation, and ozonolysis. The first two, which don't result in complete cleavage, actually perceived by syn addition. And we've looked at special types of alkenes, that's the 1,3-dienes and conjugated polyenes, from the point of view of ultraviolet spectroscopy, and also now from this particular reaction of 1,3-dienes, which is the Dill's order reaction.